0: Well, good morning. I can't top those announcements, so I'm not going to try. I'm just going to tell you to look in your bulletins for the rest, and they won't have anywhere near the entertainment value, but there's good information in there. We're going to start or continue, really, our worship now with Psalm 4. We're going to read Psalm 4 to get ourselves started. Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. That was great. Thank you to the worship team sitting there thinking, I don't know if I'm excited to preach or if it's, it's just fun to worship in that case, but we will worship now by turning open God's Word. And as I sat there, I thought, what were those 120 disciples singing and praying on that day at Pentecost? What were they praying for when the Holy Spirit poured out on them and they went out to proclaim in the streets? the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in their own languages, and then Peter stands and preaches. And that's where we return again this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We did the intro to this sermon last week, and today we continue that study of the day of Pentecost. We know Pentecost is the day that God fulfilled that last step of redemptive history before that day that we're waiting for, before Jesus Christ returns in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, to welcome us home. And as Peter made very clear last week, we saw we're in the last days, and these last days are indeed marked by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon every follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us we are all baptized by the same spirit and yet we know God uses each one of us and he gifts each one of us in very, very different ways. And one of these men who was tremendously gifted and used by God was Charles Spurgeon. He's got that moniker, that nickname that goes with him even now 130 years after his death is the Prince of Preachers. He is so often Quoted, And God used him in many ways. He used him, of course, to build a massive church in London to fight the advent of theological liberalism that was taking over, but also to create some 50-odd ministries, everything from schools to orphanages and everything else. But the thing that you see if you examine the life of Charles Spurgeon is he didn't do it alone, and neither do we. We never do it alone. That's a theme that we've seen over and over again the last two weeks. And as Charles Spurgeon would walk up the pulpit, their pulpit sat up high, they didn't have microphones, so they broadcasted out over the crowd. As he walked up each step, he could be heard whispering, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit with each step he took. And it wasn't because of nerves. It wasn't nerves that were getting to him. It was his understanding that the Holy Spirit working through the spoken and written word of God and in the hearts of the people who were actively listening, it was the Holy Spirit that brings people to salvation and transforms their lives as disciples of Jesus Christ as they go out in the world. Spurgeon would write this. He wrote, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. If we alone had the task of glorifying Christ, we might be beaten. We might fail. But given that the Holy Spirit is the glorifier of Jesus Christ, His glory is in very safe hands. And we remember that thing we looked at last week from the Bible. Jesus shared with his disciples what one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit was and is. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. And that's what we see Peter standing and doing because the rest of his sermon is going to be about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And you see all the elements of what the Spirit's work is in his introduction and in his sermon because Jesus continued to explain the role of the Holy Spirit in John 16 saying, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, which Peter does, and righteousness and judgment, which is where he opened Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, which was the beginning we looked at last week, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now we're going to jump past the intro and right into the meat of the sermon in verse 22 this morning and we're going to blast through the whole thing today. So this is part two of a two-part sermon And it's this sermon that God used to save 3,000 souls. Verse 22, it begins, Peter standing, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your spirit. And Lord, we do pray this morning that your spirit would be active in the preaching of the word and the hearing of your word, that he would transform our hearts, that he would equip us with enthusiasm and boldness to go out into the world to speak gospel truth to those who are dying under the weight of sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Peter starts, and after explaining the miracle of the languages that the crowd had heard, Peter now is moving into the very meat of his sermon. And it is a bold sermon, it is a Christ-centered sermon, and it is biblically rich, and it is very convicting, especially to the Jews, and we'll pick up some of that, some things that we might miss as we read it in our modern day. And we remember from last week who, preacher, or who Peter was preaching to, right? He's preaching to a Jewish audience, so they knew God, they knew the Old Testament, but they denied Jesus Christ as Lord. They denied Him as Savior. They were unbelievers, and we're told that many of them were openly mocking the Christians who were proclaiming the gospel in those local languages. So Peter, we saw, began by quoting from the prophet Joel. And he did that to explain that the last days had now begun with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we talked and we saw last week that Joel is actually a very short book in the minor prophets, but Joel is steeped in warnings about judgment that will come on the day of the Lord. The Spirit says through God's prophet in Joel 2, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Well then Joel sort of bounces throughout that book and the audience would know between encouraging people to repent and turn from sin and turn to God and call upon his mercy to more warnings of judgment, it kind of goes back and forth, and then finally the glorious promise of life for those who are indeed saved and find eternal rest by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter hit upon God's promise, right? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is where we left off with this question then. Who is the Lord? Who is the only Lord and Savior? That's the question Peter must answer now. We know we're reading this and we're sitting in church and we know that calling upon the name of the Lord refers to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. But to this crowd and really to the unbelieving world today when we go out and talk to them, this is not known or it's rejected. It's thought to be known. That's kind of the term post-Christian world. I think I've heard some things and I reject it. And so, with this introduction, Peter's now set up his sermon, and it's going to focus on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And we noted last week in the overview of the sermon that it focuses, like almost all of the evangelistic sermons in Acts focus, on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And we'll see that they all, on that basis of who Jesus is and what he has done, they work into calling people to repent from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for life, for life eternal. Now, this sermon breaks easily into a couple of headings, and you'll see them in your outline there. I put the verses there just so you would see it. It breaks into these headings. His life... In verse 22, his substitutionary death in verse 23. And then most of these sermons in Acts will focus heavily on the resurrection, which you see in verses 25 to 32. And then finally, he closes with kind of a combination. I didn't put this in the heading, but with his exaltation and the application to the crowd. And that's verses 33 through 36. So let's work our way through his sermon. Verse 22, his life. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. When Peter starts, he leaves no question whatsoever what the topic of this sermon is going to be. Jesus. Jesus is the topic of the sermon, and he is bold. He commands everyone's attention. There may have been murmuring in the crowds. You'd love to be there. But his words start, and we would say it different. We would say, listen up. Hear these words. Pay attention. This is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. I'm about ready to tell you about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That's what Peter starts with, and he starts with the point that Jesus was a man. He was a man he was a true person he was just like you he was just like me Jesus of Nazareth is the title he uses to point to this very fact he was a man you know he was a man because in that day it had only been 53 days or something but since Jesus was crucified they knew this but it says something else this title that he uses and it tells us something about how God works Jesus of Nazareth remember when Jesus calls his 12 disciples He calls Philip to follow him, and Philip runs and tells Nathanael, and we read in John 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. We found the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, come on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Look again, brother, like you just got sucked into a big one, right? Right? God's ways are not our ways. It's a constant reminder. They're not our ways. When the son of God who had existed in eternal glory came down to take on a human nature, he was just born of a simple virgin girl. He was raised in an obscure village, the son of a carpenter. In the words of Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't a celebrity that we would go and follow on his own. It says he was despised and rejected by men. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. To save us, to save humanity, the Son of God left the glory of heaven to grow up and live in a very humble country village in Galilee not a celebrity. It would bring him no glory. He wasn't born in a palace. There was no earthly reason to assume when people looked at him that he was God the Son in the flesh. He was a man who Hebrews says, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, got tired, got hungry, yet without sin. Without sin, he was perfect. And that is where Peter moves. Jesus was a man, but not just a man. He is truly man and truly God. And that's what he says. He was attested. We would use the word proved, right? It was proved to us by the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Many people in the audience, they would have witnessed these things. They certainly would have heard about them. Because as Jesus went through the countrysides and the cities on his ministry, he virtually wiped out sickness and disease in every region he visited through his healings. He cast out demons. He brought dead men to life. Like Lazarus, like Jairus' daughter, all of Jesus' miracles that he did attested or proved his divinity and God's approval of his son who he sent on this mission. And they were meant to do something. They were meant to awaken people and draw them to spiritual truth. Right? Jesus uh, you see this with Nicodemus Nicodemus the Pharisee comes to Jesus he's seen these miracles and it says this man came to Jesus by night and said rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him They're meant to draw people so that they ask these questions Jesus later said to the Jews who were looking to stone him right he had claimed to be the son of god in the flesh And the Jews wanted to kill him for blasphemy, for saying that. And he says to them in John 10, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. If you don't don't believe these miracles, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, right? The works are attesting to who he is. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, We are one. He is divine. He was truly man, but the signs attest to the fact that Jesus was both man and God, and yet that was never enough to convince the people. That very story ends with the Jews running out and trying to arrest him, and their hatred of righteousness, their love of their own sin, it drove them to attempt to arrest Jesus time and again, and ultimately to crucify him. But he was man. And he was God, and Peter has made this point to the audience, and despite the living proof that they had witnessed, they had committed the greatest sin a person can ever commit. What is that? What do you think that is? We come up with all kinds of ideas, but there is one sin that is greater than all other sins, one that has eternal consequences. And this is why Peter preaches with passion. Their sin was that they had rejected Jesus Christ. They had turned their backs on the grace and the mercy that he makes available by what he has done to save them. Jesus taught in John 3, 19, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works, their lives were evil. That's the greatest sin. and So Peter is striking them at the heart. This Jesus that you're rejecting, he was a man, but he is God. He is God and man, and so he moves in his sermon now to the pinnacle of Christ's redemptive work, his substitutionary death on behalf of all people who will turn from sin and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is our second point point in his second point. Acts 2.23, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's actually answering a question here. He's answering a very important question that would be rattling around in the mind of anyone who actually understood and agreed with his first points. That Jesus is God the Son and he's man. And if Jesus is God the Son in the flesh, if Jesus is actually the Christ, the Savior, why didn't he use his divine power to avoid the cross? How could the Son of God allow himself to be crucified by an angry mob? Now, The crowd didn't ask that question out loud, but that's where Peter goes. He's answering it anyway because it's a very reasonable question for an unbeliever. If Jesus is God, why did he die? Jesus answered it himself. You only need to turn to scripture. He was never a victim. Instead, he says in John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. It was his choice. He told his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. It was not optional. This was God's plan from all eternity to save us not because of our works, not because we'll ever do anything good enough, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began, before creation. 2 Timothy 1.9. Peter notes that Jesus was delivered up. He was betrayed. And he says this was according to the definite plan, the unchanging decree of our God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Our God who is in the heavens and does all that He pleases. This was His definite plan. It was done according to the foreknowledge of God. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood terms when we hit this in these scriptural passages, foreknowledge doesn't mean knowing something in advance. That's the way we use the term. What it means is ordaining something in advance, predetermining it with a very certain outcome that cannot be changed. God is not only omniscient, all-knowing, he is sovereign. In every aspect of creation, he even uses the desires and actions of wicked people to carry out his divine purposes to save people. And he did that here. And that's what Peter is pointing to. And so in this verse, you come headlong into that that divine truth that sometimes completely mystifies us. And people will get all caught up in the debates around this. We come into God's sovereignty clashing with our notions of human free will. We're not going to dwell on this here, but the fact that this was God's predetermined, ordained plan still did not take away the guilt from these people who had betrayed and denied Jesus, who shouted, crucify him. It didn't take it away. They were guilty of crucifying Jesus simply because they approved it. They endorsed it. Think about that next time you go to the polls, right? They approved it. They're guilty. The Romans nailed him. To put this simply, what Peter is saying is we, today, and they, we're not responsible for God's plan. We can't do anything to change God's divine decrees in the world. But we are responsible, just as they were, for our sins, our own sins, not somebody else's sins, our sins. He's telling them, they need a Savior. We need a Savior. And he's saying, that Savior needed to die. That Savior needed to die to pay the penalty for us. Peter doesn't go down this path right here, but the Old Testament continually points to this work. In Isaiah 53, 5 and 10, a passage you're very familiar with, he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds, we are healed. Our sins are forgiven. We're given life. It was the will of who? Who? To crush him, it was the will of Yahweh. It was the will of God to crush him. He's put him to grief. His soul made the offering for guilt because we can't. Because there's no way to work our way into God's favor. We're often faced with that challenge, sometimes in our own minds, our own hearts. Like, when will you be good enough to turn to Jesus? When will you be good enough to come to church? When will you be good enough to be baptized? Never. There's your answer. None of us are good enough, but the beautiful gift of God's grace means we don't have to be. We don't have to be. We never will be, and we don't have to be because we only need to turn to Jesus Christ, God the Son in the flesh, who paid the penalty for us in accordance with God's plan to extend grace and mercy to sinners like us if we will just turn and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he did pay that penalty on the cross, but death could not hold him. Death could not keep him. His sacrifice was perfect. It was accepted by God. He was raised on the third day. He is our living Savior. And Peter shifts to this, and will spend the bulk of his sermon on this very fact, the resurrection, which is our third point, but it's Peter's main point. Verse 24, he says boldly, God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There are many people in history who give their lives for their cause, who die for a worthy cause sometimes. And sometimes it changes society for the good and sometimes it doesn't and perhaps they get a few pages in a history book and some people get statues and monuments built to them. But the difference here is And the central aspect of the Christian faith is that the ministry of Jesus Christ and his work did not end with his death on the cross and his burial in that tomb. We serve a living Christ, a living Jesus who will return one day in all of his glory to welcome us home for all eternity. The resurrection of Jesus is the undeniable truth that gives us assurance. It gives us assurance. Assurance. That we can stand before a holy God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. Romans 4 says, it was because he was delivered up for our trespasses. He went to the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification. We can stand because he lives. And through Jesus, we live. One author put it this way, without the resurrection, Jesus' death becomes nothing more than the heroic death of a noble martyr or the pathetic death of a madman or the execution of a fraud. You simply cannot be a Christian. You cannot be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ without understanding and affirming and resting in the fact that Jesus not only died for our sins, but that he was bodily raised from the grave and he lives. The Apostle Paul captures this perfectly when he wrote to the Christians in Corinth and said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, the gospel we're sharing with you, is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's useless. And you are still in your sins, destined to pay for them for all eternity. So it's the resurrection that is key. And Peter isn't speaking here to prove the resurrection. You'll notice that in the way that he lays it out. This isn't an apologetics type sermon. He's not trying to prove the resurrection. He is confidently proclaiming it. It is a fact. And he was a witness to it. Verse 32 tells you that. What he is doing in this sermon right here is he is demonstrating to the crowd that Jesus is the Christ. And the resurrection testifies to that fact more than any of Jesus' teachings and more than any of his miracles because it testifies to the crowd, it demonstrates to them that God's plan was fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus. And the sacrifice he made on that cross for their sins and for our sins was perfect. And it was acceptable to God as a substitute for anyone who will follow Jesus as Lord. Until he raised him from the grave. And Peter begins with this bold and simple statement, God raised him up. He said, you crucified him, but God raised him up. Death could not hold him. And there was never any doubt. There should have never been any doubt because Jesus is not only the Christ, he is the Son of God. You go back to John chapter 2 and verses 19 and following, the Jews had asked Jesus for a sign, show us a sign that you're the Christ. And Jesus answered them in verse 19, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You know the story, they were very confused by that, thinking he was talking about the temple made of stones. But it goes on and says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, that whole passage concludes by saying the disciples didn't understand either, but Peter and the disciples would remember this after Jesus was raised from the dead. Remember, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to those apostles is he would bring to remembrance the things that Jesus did and taught, and he did. But it has this interesting little ending to it. They would remember this, and they would believe all the Scriptures had to say about Jesus. And so to Scripture, Peter turns to make this point. And he turns to Psalm 16, to be exact. Psalm 16 is a psalm that celebrates everything that results from a life lived in submission to God's will. But Peter is going to use that psalm to show that the resurrection of Christ was foretold by David, the author of the psalm. So in verses 25 through 28, he quotes a few verses from Psalm 16. He says, David says, concerning him... I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus lived with a focus on doing the will of the Father. His obedience was perfect. That's what enabled him to be the perfect lamb, to be sacrificed on our behalf. But he could look with hope and joy toward the cross, as horrible as that was, because he knew he would be preserved. His flesh would be preserved. He would be raised from the grave victorious. Doing the will of the Father brought him great joy even in the face of a terrible death. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? The joy was in doing his father's will, in fulfilling God's plan to redeem people, in saving, perfectly saving everyone who will turn from sin and follow him because he has paid their debt. Now like any good expository preacher, Peter has now quoted scripture and he needs to explain how this psalm actually Points to and confirms that Jesus is the Christ, and that's where he moves in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, this would ring in their ears because there is a very rich history about the tomb of King David. And Herod had built a very big, fancy marble memorial in front of it. So everyone knew where it was. It was an impressive sight. What Peter is saying is, look, you guys, nobody can look to Psalm 16, which you'll note is written in the first person, I, right? Nobody can look to the Psalm 16 and believe that David had been the fulfillment of this psalm. Because he indeed, he indeed did die. He died, he was buried, and you know right where he is buried. Just go to the marble monument, the gravestone. So he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Peter's saying, David knew as he wrote this psalm that he was not the Messiah, he was not the Christ, but he also knew that God had made a promise to him. God had said in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting in verse 12, he declared to David through the prophet Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, you are going to die. When you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. One person. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever forever. So knowing and believing this promise of God, knowing that God cannot lie, Peter says of David that he, this is verse 31, that he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That's what he was doing, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, this is how Peter is explaining the messianic prophecy of Psalm 16. It began when he declared that God raised Jesus from the dead. Then from the psalm, Peter points to the reality that it speaks of the resurrection. There's something else here. He notes that it was written by David, but not in his role as king. It wasn't written by King David. It was written by David as a prophet. And we know what Peter will later say about Scripture in Second Peter. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Where did we begin? What's the key role of the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus say? The Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. And every word of Scripture is God-breathed, superintended by the Holy Spirit. He acts and speaks through his word and points to Jesus Christ. So Peter says, it was written by David as a prophet. But since David himself was not resurrected, he cannot be the Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, must be raised from the dead. How else could the promise made to David be fulfilled? That a son of David would rule forever over God's people. And we know who God's people are. God's people are people adopted as children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying the resurrection is the ultimate sign, the ultimate proof that God has accomplished salvation of his people. He has set his Christ to reign. So Peter delivers the punchline that brings it all together. In verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The resurrection of Christ, the only Savior, it was not only foretold by God in Scripture, it has happened. And we are witnesses. Who's the we? You you just have to go back to verse 14. You remember the sermon began with Peter standing up with the other 11 apostles. And then you think about what Jesus had commissioned them, right? You will be my witnesses. And the criteria for apostleship was that they had witnessed the risen Lord. They needed to take this message out to all. He doesn't need to prove it. We were witnesses. We saw it. Think about 1 John, we saw, we touched, we heard, right? That's the witness of the apostles. Now, Peter moves to his final point, the next part of a good sermon, he'll actually take and apply this biblical truth to the events of the day, what they were witnessing. So we move to the exaltation, there's sort of an additional point, and then he proves it out. Remember last week, we turned to Scripture and saw that the Spirit would be poured out after Jesus was glorified. The Bible said He wouldn't be poured out because Jesus was not yet glorified, and then we hit that point. So in verse 33, Peter continues, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, the best explanation for what has happened here comes from Scripture itself. From turning back to Jesus' prayer in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus on the night of his rest, and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That is exaltation. With the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus has now been exalted. He has returned to the Father's right hand. The humiliation that we call it, Him taking on flesh, Him going to the cross, Him living as a man, that work is complete just as He shouted from that cross. It is finished. And now Jesus is glorified. The evidence of this is the Spirit has been poured out on all believers to continue His ministry. I want to read Philippians 2, 7 through 11, because it summarizes that whole scenario from the start to the finish. It says, The eternal Son of God emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humiliation. Therefore, having fulfilled God's redemptive plan, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has been exalted. His work here is complete. We wait for him to return. And being at the right hand of the Father, that term means that Jesus occupies forever a position of glory and power and honor. There's a bit more to this than that, especially for this audience. But Peter does bring it full circle to what they're witnessing at Pentecost, right? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The 120 disciples who had been filled by the Spirit for this ministry were out proclaiming the gospel in many languages. He makes this point. That we might miss, but they would not. He says here that Jesus, having been exalted, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. That's a big difference from Joel. In Joel chapter 2 verse 28, God said, I will pour out my spirit. What Peter is again pointing them to is who Jesus is. What Jesus has done And what we're now reading is that Jesus is sharing in the heavenly rule of the Father. He is proclaiming a Trinitarian truth that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three persons in one nature, one God. And Jesus is now serving and continuing to serve at the Father's right hand in an active role in salvation. And he is serving as the very mediator of God's blessings upon his people. It points to a very triumphant Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why he immediately quotes Psalm 110. For David, verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the Old Testament, we know, and the Jews would have known listening to this, that would read, (laughs) David himself says Yahweh says to my Lord sit at my right hand that's why Jesus once used this very text to point to the fact that the Christ that they were waiting for the only savior must be both the son of man and the son of God Matthew 22 Jesus asked people what do you think about the Christ whose son is he and they said to him the son of David And they were right. Scripture points to the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, must come from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, right? And he must be a descendant of David. They weren't wrong. But then he says, how is it then that David in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And that would be puzzling. Someone who couldn't grasp that he is the Son of God. And he is Lord of all. He is Lord of every person. He is Lord and sovereign over all of creation. But for the Jews at that time, the implication that Jesus is the exalted Lord in Christ would absolutely be mind-blowing because they had been taught over and over again that nobody, no created being, would ever be able to sit in God's presence. It's impossible because his glory His person, his perfection, his infinite holiness would be too much to allow for any created being to sit in his presence. So when Peter lays this out for them, the implication is that there is unity and there is equality shared between the Father and the Son in the Godhead, the very Son who became Jesus of Nazareth, God and man, to save us. And he moves to the clincher of the entire sermon, It's a statement that demands a response. He has essentially said in this sermon, since Jesus is God and Jesus is man, since that was attested to you, it was proven by many miracles and signs, since you know that he died on that cross, but since you know he was also resurrected from the dead and has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father, the seat of power and glory, Peter now proclaims, let all the house of Israel Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, by all this, he says, everything we've just gone through, God has made known to you. He has made evident that Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is just laid out in this sermon from verse 14 to 36. You've witnessed this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that signifies you're in the last days and you are moving toward, just as we are, that final day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of God's promise and He is the indication that Jesus is vindicated, He is victorious, He is glorified so that the crucified Jesus is now risen. He is exalted. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. He's mediating God's blessing of mercy and grace. Friends, you need to turn to him because salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus. And he is pouring that out as both Lord and Christ. The cross didn't end the ministry of Jesus. It continues. And it continues through God the Holy Spirit working through his word, working through every individual who makes up Christ's church. And so Peter is saying, if you can understand all that, who Jesus is, what he has done, the implications of that, then it demands a response. And that's what Peter is setting up when he says for the second time in this sermon, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified. What Peter is doing with that simple statement is preparing the audience for a call to repentance and faith. He's telling them in very plain terms where they stand in relationship to God. They are in enmity. They need to be reconciled. They have rejected Jesus as Lord. And in one way or another, the task of every evangelist has to include the need or a way to demonstrate the need for repentance and faith. That sin has indeed separated us from God and that Jesus Christ is the only way to reconcile us with God, to be forgiven of sins, to have eternal life, because don't forget the glorious truth that Peter has laid out for them. We can't forget the promise that was extended to this audience and that it's a promise that's extended to every person today. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That Lord, we know, is Jesus Christ. That promise is for us and for the world. And what we should take in seeing that with this crowd is that that, that, that offer, that that offer of grace And mercy here was being extended even to those who demanded that Jesus be crucified. That should point you toward the breadth and the depth and the expansiveness of the love of Jesus Christ and the effectiveness, the perfect effectiveness of his atoning work on that cross to cover the sins of those who will turn to him. Peter closed a later sermon by saying this in Acts 4. Preaching again to Jews, he said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He says, and there is salvation, but there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must be saved. We must turn to Jesus. He is the only way. And we know the end. And we'll see it next week when we look at the response. Many in this crowd would harden their hearts. They would hold on to their sin. They would deny that Jesus was the Savior. They would suffer for all eternity for it. But the wonderful thing is we'll see 3,000 souls saved next week. 3,000 people who would repent, who would believe, who would be baptized, who would spend eternity with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. People that if you too are saved, you will someday talk to them, what was that first sermon like? I heard a lot of sermons. I liked some. I hated others. What was that one that Peter gave like? What did people think? See, all that stands between us and eternity and where we will spend it is Jesus Christ. His offer is for everyone. Repent. Turn from sin. Trust in him. He is God. He is man. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of our submission to him. Follow him as Lord. If you follow him, then we come full circle. We're so engrossed here on Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. We should be reminded, pray. Pray that we might be filled like Peter was that day. He was a man who went from denying he even knew Jesus Christ to a man who could stand up among his peers. Many men who were educated, and we'll see later, they looked down on him for not being educated. And he could proclaim Jesus Christ in all of his power and glory. And he could call men and women to believe. Turn from sin and believe. Believe for the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. I will tell you, that takes love. You have to love someone enough to call them to turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you instruct us through your word That you've given us your word and that we know that every single word of it, though written through men, are the exact words that you intend. That your promise is true. Lord, that we know that you never lie so we can rest on every promise you have made. And most importantly, to rest on the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we can look to him in our darkest moments and know, I can stand because of him. But though I have sinned, I can stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your son who lived among us, who died for us, who was raised from the grave. Lord, we're thankful that we know that we serve a living Christ. We're thankful for the outpouring, the gift of your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would fill your followers, fill each one of us and give us the courage, the joy, the boldness, the love to go and proclaim Jesus as Savior, and as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.